0: For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, bringing you the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter and asking all of you who haven't yet done so please to hit the subscribe button for our videos. Also subscribe to the newsletter and make a one-time or monthly pledge so that we can keep bringing facts and logic to the climate debate. Unlike our government, which we kicked off this week by noting, sent 335 delegates or thereabouts to the COP27 climate fest in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. There were actually so many that they couldn't count them precisely, nor could they say how these people were getting there, what their carbon footprint would be, or even the total cost. But certainly 335 is too many people for serious scientific or policy work, though it's plenty for expensive fun in the sun for politicians and their buddies, or to stage a giant rally to chant slogans in unison, if that sort of thing appeals to you. To be fair, in response to our inquiries, they did eventually burble that, quote, the government of Canada is working with all delegates to ensure that carbon emissions associated with traveling to and from COP27 are being offset, end quote. So at least some peasant somewhere is walking to make up for all the jet fuel they burned, along with their credibility. Oh, by the way, Post Media columnist Brian Lilly, who's also been trying in vain to uncover which leading Canadian political prime minister stayed in the $6,000-a-night suite in London during the Queen's funeral ceremonies, asked about accommodations for the immense horde of Canadian delegates to COP27 and reports that he was told, quote, that information could not be released due to security concerns, but, the person who responded added, the minister was leading a diverse group, end quote which even if true is not relevant, since Lily asked about their lodgings, not their pronouns. But, as he also added, quote, Diverse, you can be sure the people the government have invited all have exactly the same thoughts as the minister does, end quote. And Lily's own investigations of various resorts where they might be staying revealed things like, quote, Limestone cliffs embrace a kilometre of private beachfront with crystal-clear waters and access to a protected marine reserve, end quote, or opportunities to, quote, discover the paradise of Egypt's Red Sea and immerse yourself in the luxury of all-inclusive hospitality, end quote, both of which suggest that when the bill does come, it won't be a pretty sight. Meanwhile, one of us travelled steerage to Western Canada last weekend, going to an economy hotel, not a tropical resort, And we were astonished to discover by looking out the plane window that the Canadian prairies from Manitoba through Alberta were covered in a thick blanket of unseasonable snow. Why were we surprised? Because if the Canadian West had been more than a dozen degrees above the seasonal average, instead of that far below it as it actually was, it would have been international climate news, whereas temperatures falling as fast as the thick wet snow barely made the weather report. And speaking of cold fates, you have to pity Otzi the Iceman, the guy who was unearthed under receding glaciers back in 1991. True, he's looking fairly good for a man who's over 5,000 years old and that he's not just some dust. But in addition to not always getting the umlaut on his O and apparently experiencing a rough death, it now seems he's had a pretty rough resting place as well a new article in Sage Journals, says, quote, It is likely that Otzi was not permanently buried in ice immediately after his death, but that the gully where he lay was repeatedly exposed over the next 1,500 years, end quote. What? Glaciers advancing and retreating and advancing again in natural cycles? Someone's going to try to bury a hatchet in that discovery or an arrowhead, we dare say. Now, the authors claim that this pattern primarily occurred in the millennium and a half after his death, meaning between what they call the Holocene Thermal Maximum, perhaps to avoid the word optimum, and the cooling that caused the Late Bronze Age Collapse, during which the Sea People sacked Troy and made life miserable or ended it completely in Egypt. Which is more proof cooling isn't the blessing the Alarmists seem to believe, nor is warmth the curse. But either way, science suggests, and again, it's not settled, it's just a hypothesis, but it suggests that between 3000 BC and 1991, his semi-final resting place was repeatedly frozen and repeatedly exposed, which means that there is nothing weird or unnatural about it being exposed again in 1991, and there's no suggestion that the previous thaws had anything to do with CO2. And speaking of economic collapse, a pseudo-scary headline from Global News tells us, quote, climate change could hit Canada's GDP by 6% over long-term, new report warns, end quote. To which we would add, quote, inability to understand very basic mathematics could hit Canada's public debate at once, end quote. Because even if it were plausible that our parliamentary budget officer knows what the weather will be like in 2100, which it's not, this report isn't warning us of anything except that all government policies proposed or implemented in the name of fighting climate change are a terrible idea, which is the exact opposite of what the news story claimed. Now, oddly, the story. I admitted that, quote, the report acknowledged the data leaves several open questions and that not fully captured in our analysis are some complex issues such as adaptation, international economic spillovers, transition within industries and regions, as well as exceptional increases in extreme weather events, end quote. In short, hocus pocus. They don't know what the economy will do, what we will do, or what the weather will do. But even so, the worst bit is that the journalist, and at least one opposition party, believed that the threat was an actual drop in GDP. The political party press release said, quote, Today a parliamentary report found that the climate crisis will cause the GDP to fall, end quote. So they think the PBO was warning that because of climate change, we'll be 6% poorer in 78 years than we are now, with our GDP shrinking to maybe $1.87 trillion. But what it was really saying is it would be 6% poorer than we would otherwise be. That is, the economy might grow 363% instead of 369%, but either way it would still be $8 trillion. Now, for some real fear, suppose instead that, panicked by this burst of innumerate vagueness, we did some dumb thing like impose a big carbon tax and drive our fossil fuel industry into a coma. If that suite of policy blunders cut the average growth rate By 5.8%, it would leave us something like a trillion dollars less wealthy than if we didn't, rather than a couple of billion. Money might still buy happiness at that level, but in terms of a sensible choice between alternatives, what the PBO is telling us is that even if very punitive climate policies turn out to be less damaging than they look, And even if putting them in place somehow changes global climate, even though Canada's share of man-made greenhouse gases is trivial, the cost of implementing them will massively exceed the cost of doing nothing and, in 2100, taking it on the chin very gently. Do not implement climate policies, new report warns, is the headline we'd write, followed by do not let journalists do math without first passing a basic test. Oh, and speaking of things going wrong, We realize the immolation of the Hindenburg didn't prove that Zeppelins were always and everywhere a bad idea, nor that a pedestrian being killed by a car going about 8 miles an hour in 1896, the first such fatality we know of, meant automobiles were unsafe at any speed. But it's still hard to overlook the fact that electric vehicle batteries are disturbingly prone to bursting savagely into flames. As Joe Nova recently pointed out, six people have died in New York alone, in 2022 alone, in house fires started by e-bikes alone. If it were any other appliance doing this much damage, we have to assume it would've been banned by now. And it's no fluke. She quotes an NPR story that starts, quote, four times a week on average, an e-bike or e-scooter battery catches fire in New York City, end quote. Four times a week? Do gasoline cars do that? Do airplanes? As NBC observed in a separate story about New York EV fires, the Fire Department of New York Deputy Assistant Chief Frank Lieb told a briefing, quote, the lithium-ion battery adds a different degree when we talk about the fire dynamics of it. These rooms flash over in just a mere matter of seconds, end quote. Flash over doesn't sound good, and it's not. That story quoted another fire official that, quote, these fires, they come without warning, and when they do go on fire, they're so intense that any combustibles in the area will catch fire. So we've seen secondary fires, end quote. Of course, the technology will improve over time, and yes, manufacturers will probably focus on not having them detonate and slay their owners and their owners' neighbors. Cars are certainly safer than they used to be, and in fact, so are blimps. And we concede New York tenements were dangerous before e-bikes, so it's a matter of proportion. Those who say we're all going to die from climate change if we don't completely alter our civilization in the next eight years aren't famous for their sense of proportion but that it could argue that these fires are a price worth paying if the alternative is that the planet catches fire. But for the rest of us, the rush to adopt this new technology that's literally exploding into the marketplace might need the brakes applied. In the newsletter, we also note that with so many geological periods, it's hard to keep track even of ones that do exist, let alone invented ones like the Anthropocene. In fact, we even take the view that calling the Holocene an epoch is vainglorious. Sure, it might be when we humans invented civilization, but to the Earth, it's just a minor instance of the recurring warm but brief interglacial periods within the Pleistocene epoch, also known as the ongoing ice age, that began two and a half million years ago. So what about this megalion? Well, it's an age, and yes, even keeping track of the different names like epochs and ages and periods can be a challenge. But Wikipedia incautiously admits that, quote, it was officially ratified by the International Commission on Stratigraphy in June 2018 and, quote, begins 4,200 years BP, circa 2250 BCE or 7750 HE, with a 200-year drought that impacted human civilizations in the eastern Mediterranean, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, and the Yangtze River Valley, end quote. Why do we say incautiously? Because if you look at the temperature profile of the Holocene, you see that this drought and various other negative impacts, which were not regional but quite widespread, were also caused not by warming but by cooling. So whatever alarmists think the ideal temperature of the Earth would be if we really did control the CO2 thermostat, and they're notoriously evasive on this point, there's a strong argument here that cooler than today would not be the right choice. In the newsletter, we also continue our Everybody Knows series by observing that Glacier National Park in Montana had the park staff put up signs a decade ago warning visitors that due to global warming the ice would be gone by 2020. Well, the glaciers are still there, it's the signs that are gone. Or that have been rewritten to refer vaguely to future generations rather than to a precise date like 2020. That's in the past. Even though Everybody knows it's recent man-made climate change that has been melting glaciers since 1800, but, for some reason, seems unable to finish them off on cue. Maybe not everybody. As Judith Curry just pointed out, the Montana glaciers started forming about 7,000 years ago, but they really cranked it up after the medieval warm period ended, around 1400, and they maxed out around 1850, before going into a retreat, most of which happened before 1966. And as she also observes, Montana's had a series of record-breaking cold winters in the past few years, so maybe they're going to make a comeback. And speaking of cold, we want to warn you that if you're going to Anticosti Island, where the mighty St. Lawrence River meets the mighty Atlantic Ocean, you should take your boots because the ground is boggy and take your coat because it's cold. In fact, a study of those peat bugs says that area was warmer in summer for most of the past 8,000 years than it is now. This chart is from their paper, except for the yellow line, which shows their estimate of present day temperature, but was added by Kenneth Richard. And as these things often do, the chart reads from left to right, with zero being no years BP, that's before present. And as you can see, the line ends 150 years ago, showing that even during the Little Ice Age, it was much warmer there than it is now, and that it's gotten cooler in the last 150 years. So much for the hockey stick and for unprecedented temperatures, at least there. And speaking of Glacier National Park, we also dip into the CO2Science.org archive where they discuss a September 2, 1997 visit by then-U.S. Vice President Al Gore, now a redoubtable climate alarmist millionaire, where he lamented the rapid disappearance of the glaciers. But, that study also discovers, they were melting much faster before human greenhouse gases became a significant thing than they are today. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know that glacier scare story is as dead as Odyssey.